don't tell me That's ridiculous If she says she spells love T-I-M-E Don't grammatically correct her If she says you both should give a hundred percent Don't tell her that's impossible Mathematically Don't 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 do it Stop Must stop it Cut it out Never leave an argument by yelling out Well fine Don't do it Unless she was asking how your day was Said it was more like, well, fine. That's okay. When she makes dinner, she needs to do the dishes. He's kidding. I was. That's your job. Never tell her jokes like, what do you do when the dishwasher stops working? You tell her to get back to work. No, that's not funny. Maybe just a little. help it we're just hopeless romantics around here and uh, we love commemorating valentine's day and mushy thoughts singles awareness day i'll I'll take that (coughs) when i was in college um i was a church music major and everybody in the church or actually in the music department knew everybody because you had all of these classes together and so you would go over to the music school and and you knew just everybody there And if you had classes together and then had a break afterwards, a lot of us would go to lunch together. So I had one of those. I lived off campus, but I had one of those lunch-only meal plans. 
And so uh, I would go with all my friends. And one day about 20, 25 of us, maybe 30 of us went, and we would pack out this one cafeteria, and we'd line up in these long tables, and we'd just have this great time talking, you know, and all these people would just be hanging out. And, and I used to really enjoy doing that before I'd have to go study or go to work or something like that. Well, one day there, there are all of us there, and there's two or three new faces, and, and I didn't think much about it, and people are introducing one another, and there was this girl there, and she was kind of cute, but I really didn't think much about it because other things were on my mind. A couple of days later, I'm sitting out front of the music school and I'm, I'm waiting for my class to begin and it's a beautiful day and I'm kind of reading and studying a little bit and I hear two female friends, three, two ladies that I know over here, they're talking and they said, uh, oh yeah, the other day when we all had lunch, this girl said, Doug's hot. I stopped studying. I started listening and, and they said, she said he has the most amazing eyes she's ever seen. I was intrigued. <laughs> A little bit flattered. So later that day, lo and behold, who do I see? New girl. I thought, well, I'll just talk. I'll just flirt with her a little bit to see where this goes. So I walk up and tap her on the shoulder. I go, hey. She turns around with this confused look on her face. She goes, hi. I said, I met you the other day at lunch. And she goes, really? I said, yeah, my name's Doug. And she goes, oh, good to see you again. Now, this was 24 years ago, so the, the details are a little fuzzy at this point. But something like this happened. Sometime right after that, my roommate, whose name is also Doug, walks by. New girl goes, hey, Doug, and runs up, and, they, and I just was like, shot down. Dude, I guess my eyes weren't that amazing after all. And, and y'all are laughing because none of y'all have ever, ever been in a situation where you thought one thing was going on and another reality was there, right? None of you have ever thought you were better looking than you really are. That's never happened, Right? When I had hair, that used to happen, but that doesn't happen anymore. None of you have ever thought you're stronger than you really are, right? None of you have ever thought that you're smarter. That's never happened to anybody here, right? Anyone? Anyone ever had one of those situations where you thought you were something? What always happens right after you think you're something? You come face to face with humiliation. Humility happens, right? It's almost if, it's almost if there is this universal law that says pride goes before the fall. Have you heard of that one before? I, I, I think it's in here. Doesn't God say that, that pride goes before the fall? When you are full of yourself, the Bible says, watch out, because you are going to be brought low. All throughout the pages of Scripture. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should, because humility happens, or humiliation happens, right? And it gets your attention. But actually, that's okay. Because the Bible says that you will, get, you will never make spiritual progress while you're full of yourself. The Bible says that, that if you are full of knowledge, what knowledge tends to do is puff you up because you think you're superior in your knowledge. 
If you think you're, you're better at something than someone else, you get puffed up and all of a sudden God can't work in there because there's too much of you in there. And the Bible says that you've got to be brought low. And so I want to tell you a story today, read you some passages from Scripture about a story that I've been reading. Um, I, actually, I was reading in the Old Testament before we started this whole read through the New Testament in 30 days. And so I was reading this several weeks ago, and, and God just keeps bringing it back to my mind as we're going through this series. And it's about King David. And, uh, and, and I want to just start with First uh, Chronicles 21.1 and want to start reading this to you. Now, pay attention here. Satan decided to cause trouble for Israel by making David think it was a good idea to find out how many people there were in Israel and Judah. Okay, very first thing, whose idea was this? Satan's. Did not come from God, right? See, a lot of times we talk about we have good ideas, but we don't have God ideas. Do you see the difference? Satan can have good ideas, but if it's not God, God's idea, then it's not a good idea. You understand what I'm, where I'm coming from? So you may be thinking, what is the big deal about counting the people in Israel? Well, specifically, what David wanted to know was how big his army was. David was at the end of his reign. He was the king after God's own heart. He had conquered all of the lands that, that God wanted him to conquer. And he was getting ready to turn his kingdom over to Solomon, his son who was the wisest man who ever lived. David had wanted to build the temple. And God said, no, you can't build the temple because you're a man of bloodshed, but your son after you it will be a man of peace and he can build the temple where my name will be worshipped. And so something, we see here that it was Satan, something caused David to think it would be a good idea to count how big, but it, he wasn't counting everybody in Israel. He was counting his army. He wanted to know how big and bad and strong his army was. So then he could turn everything over to his son. And it gets him in all kinds of trouble. Now, if you remember that um, David was this great military commander, did all these things, but he actually had somebody in his, um, in his military who was his number one man. His name was Joab. David was called the man after God's own heart. Joab was the man with no heart. Joab was a spiritual dipstick. Joab was the dude, he was a ruthless killer. Read about it, man. He would kill people, people get in his way. He'd just kill him, he'd just kill him, he'd just kill him. Look how Joab responds to this Satan idea that, that David thought was a good idea. Verse 3. But Joab replied, May the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. But my, why, my lord the king, do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel to sin? If the spiritual dipstick in your life says, I don't think this is a God idea. If even the idiots in your life are saying, this is a bad idea, maybe you should pay attention. Because he's going, dude, all you're going to do is get us in trouble with God. And David, the man after God's own heart, he doesn't care. He says, go count them. I don't care. I want to know how big my army is. I want to know how many men I have in my army. Well, it takes about 10 months to do this. That's what the Bible says. Because in those days, you know, you couldn't send out letters. You didn't call on cell phone. You didn't text. They had to go out and physically count all of the fighting men. And that was men above the age of 20. So it takes 10 months for this to happen. And Joab, the dipstick, is hating life. He is hating it. He knows he's doing the wrong thing. He knows they're in trouble with God. And then when you get down to verse 8, look what David finally figures out. Ten months later, David prayed, I am your servant. He's talking to God. But what I did was what? 
stupid and terribly wrong. Please forgive me. So, okay, David comes to his senses 10 months later. God, I blew it. God, will you forgive me? And God always says, of course I'll forgive you. Forgiveness is immediate. However, God doesn't remove the consequences of our sin. And you might be saying, what are are the consequences? Well, they're pretty big because God has this principle. When your sin is big and public, then, then God has to deal with that big and publicly. When your sin is... See, it's like if you, have a, if you have an issue with somebody in the church, what the Bible says is you go to those people one-on-one. That's the prescription to do it. You don't come up here on stage and broadcast everywhere. You know what they did to me. No, that's not, that's not God's way. But in this instance, the whole nation knew David had gone after an idea that was not God's idea. And so here's what God does. He sends this uh, prophet named Gad to see him. And, and Gad says, okay, God, God and Gad, you can get that confused. God says you got three choices here. You can have three um, months of famine. I'm sorry, three years of famine, three months of being defeated and chased around your own territory by your enemies by the enemy armies or you can have three days of the sword of the lord and the bible calls it this pestilence the sword of the lord so here it is here's the math 1095 days of no food in your land 90 days of running around with your enemies boasting killing just having a good time in your own land or three days of pestilence the sword of the lord going around which would you choose Three? Well, that's what David did. David said, I'm going to put us into the hands of the Almighty God because I know he's merciful. And so God says, all right. God sends the angel, and and it says the angel of the Lord, and he takes his sword, and he starts moving out around the the nation of Israel. 70,000 men die because of David's sin. 70,000 men. Almost 10% of the, the, the standing army died because of David's sin. Boldly saying... Because... It was as if David was saying, my success in life has been built on my military might. In Scripture, did the Israelites ever have the biggest, baddest army on the planet? When they marched into the promised land and they walk around Jericho, was it their military might that made the walls fall down? No. A little bit later, they got complacent and they went to a little town called Ai and they said, oh, just send 3,000 people because it's just a little, it's Slocum. We can take Slocum with no problem. And they got whipped. And they come back crying, oh God. And God says, get up, there's sin in the camp. The reason you were defeated is because you have not trusted in me. And so throughout the history of Israel, God has always been the provider. And David says, I want my military. I want to know how big and how strong I really am. And so 70,000 of these men die. And then here's what happens. As As the angel of the Lord says, with his sword drawn, is coming to Jerusalem, which is the city of David, which is the capital of the kingdom. God looks at the angel and says, stop. So the angel stops. And the exact spot where he is, is the threshing floor of a man named Aruna. Now, the threshing floor, what they did there was, that's when they gathered the wheat harvest. They would go in and they would beat it and all of the bad stuff, you know, the chaff, it would be blown away and they would keep the good stuff. So they're in there working and the angel stops right there. At this point, God opens the eyes of David and all of his, all the elders, it says, and they see the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. They know 70,000 people have died and they bow down and they say, oh, we have so messed up. So public sin, public repentance. Then the angel of the Lord tells Gad again, he says, Gad, go tell David this message. 
you are to sacrifice to me at the very spot where the, where the angel is standing, the threshing floor of Aruna. And so <laughs> this is really cool because here's what's going on with the wheat crop in, in Aruna's threshing floor. Verse 20, Aruna turned and saw the angel and his four sons were with him, who were with him, hid themselves. But Aruna continued threshing wheat. I got to meet this guy in heaven, this Aruna, because the angel of the Lord is standing there. His four boys head for the hills. Ah, running. He keeps threshing wheat. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Sees the angel of the Lord. Wow. Keeps working. That's my kind of guy. Keep on working. Then he turns and he sees David, the king out there. And, and so he stops and he goes out and meets the king and he says, King, what do you need? David said, well, I need your threshing floor. I need, I need to, to make an offering here. And Aruna says, take it. Aruna says, you can have my threshing floor. There are, there are uh, animals there for all the sacrifices. Everything you need. You can have it, O king, to, to, to sacrifice to God. And, and then something happens. David could have taken that gift and turned around and re-gifted it to God. Because re-gifting is really giving, isn't it? Re-gifting is, is technically all right, isn't it? Nobody wants to admit that they've done it. Look what David says in verse 24. David replied, no. I want to pay you what they're worth. I can't just take something from you and then offer the Lord a sacrifice that costs me what? Nothing. By definition, if a sacrifice costs you nothing, is it a sacrifice? No. So David pays the full price for the threshing floor. He buys the land around it. They offer sacrifices to God and the nation is forgiven their sin. Now, one of the things that really drew me to Christianity and to studying the Bible is God is a God of details. I'm always telling you that. God never wastes a detail. The interesting thing about this story is Aruna's threshing floor was on a place called Mount Moriah. If you've read the Old Testament any at all, you know who the founder of the, the Israelite nation was? Abraham. Do you know where Abraham, God asked him to sacrifice his son? Mount Moriah. Do you know where the temple was built after David purchased this land and, and gathered all of the material for Solomon to build the temple? Do you know where the temple was built? Just take a guess. Mount Moriah. God never wastes a detail. The father of the nation worshipped God there and said, God, you're more important to me than my own son, through whom all of the blessings you said were going to come, through all, the heir of everything. I'm gonna, you're more important to me, God, than my son. And so God didn't make him sacrifice that son. God says, I know, I know your heart, because you're a man who's willing to sacrifice for me. David messes up, but then God redeems him right there on Mount Moriah. And then the, the whole nation eventually worships there. And just a stone's throw away from this mountain... You can see this mountain from where Jesus Christ sacrificed his life. This idea of sacrifice goes throughout the pages of Scripture, and it's something that we in America know very little about. Look what God says in Romans 3.25. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin, having faith in him who sets us in the clear. God decided on this course of action in full view of the public to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, finally taking care of the sins he had so patiently endured. There was a time that God had to decide what to do with rebellious men and women. And he decided to send Jesus. 
And, and, you know, he could have destroyed us and started over. He did that once before in the flood of Noah. Remember that story? But this time God did something amazing. He sent his own son to die for our sins. To pay for our spiritual depravity. Because God knew that on our own we were going to hell. And he could not bear that thought. And the Bible tells us that when, when Jesus Christ was stretched out on that crossbeam, and when the nails were actually began to, to be beaten into his wrist, when the soldiers started putting the nails in his wrist, Jesus released his grip on all that he was, on his life, on his power, on his majesty, on his glory, so that you and I might have the opportunity to be adopted into the kingdom of God. And, and when you become a follower of Christ, as you begin to turn over your life to him, there's something that happens in you. You begin to open up your hands and release the resources that God has given you back to him. You show me a selfish Christian and I'll tell you, I'll show you someone who has taken their eyes off of the cross. But you show me someone who opens up their hands and says, God, whatever is mine is yours because it comes from you in the first place. Then I'll show you someone who gets it and someone who will make a difference, not just in 2010 in Palestine, Anderson County, but someone who will make a difference years after this lifetime ends. And so I've I've got some questions for you. David said, I can't offer something to God that costs me nothing. Well, are you giving God the leftovers of your life? Are you giving God the leftovers of your time, of your money? Is God really in charge of your life or is your Christian life one of convenience? And, uh, and, and don't say this is about new life. This, this has nothing to do with new life, paying off debt and building a new worship center in three years. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with gratitude for what Jesus Christ did for you. Grateful Christians are giving Christians. And, and some of you are like, Doug, shut up, man. How long are you going to talk about giving and sacrifice? This series is never going to end. Let me just explain to you very clearly why I keep talking about this. In the Bible, it talks about values that we're supposed to have. There's a value called faith. You ever heard of it? We started this series saying the one thing you must have to please God is faith. You know how many times faith or a variation of that word is mentioned in the Bible? 246 times. Read through there, you'll find it, 246 times. There's another word that's real popular in in our time, hope. You know how many times hope is in the Bible? 185 times. Love, on Valentine's Day, that's a good word to talk about, love. 733 times the word love or its variation appears in the Bible. Do you know how many times the word give or giving appears in the pages of Scripture? 2,285 times. Why would that be? Because God knows it's an indication of your heart. Let me just give you real quickly four reasons why giving is such a big deal in the Christian life. Number one, giving draws me closer to God. Jesus asked a question, you know, where's your heart? And then he answered, he said, your heart, your emotions will always follow your money. If your money is in an investment, guess where your heart is? In the investment. If your money's in a house, guess where your heart is? In the house. If your money's in a boat, a career, a hobby, 
Anything else, that's where your heart is. The Bible says that money is like a magnet. Wherever you put your money, it draws your heart. And so God says, I want you to give a portion. Not all of it. God says, I want you to give a portion. Because I know it'll draw you to me. It will draw you closer to God. Second, giving is an antidote to materialism. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both God and money. God says, you got to make a choice. Who's going to be your God in life? Every time you give, you're saying, God, you're my top priority. Those of your parents, I want to challenge you to let your children see you give. Let them see you sacrifice. Your kids know you go to money. Go to money. They know you go to work to make money. They see you making money. They see you spending money. They see you hopefully saving money. Have they ever seen you give? Have they ever seen you sacrifice for the kingdom of God? I remember when I learned to tithe, was watching my dad back when dad worked for Phillips Petroleum, 37 years. Dad would write out a check. I remember him writing $40 every week on that check. And I was thinking, holy cow, that's a lot of money. 40 years ago, dad writing a check. We didn't have money. And I remember as a kid going, this church thing must be pretty important. So let your kids call a, call a family conference. We've done this this week. We're talking and praying about what we're supposed to do in just a couple of weeks. I want my kids to learn that there is nothing in this life that matters more than God and His kingdom. Number three, giving strengthens my faith. Sooner or later, you've got to decide, can God be trusted in the area of finances? Is God trustworthy is he lying is he lying in scripture when he says he can be trusted all the time i get the question well where does it say in the bible to tithe well there's several places but the biggest one that most people know about is malachi chapter 3 verses 8 through 10 god says will a man rob god but you're robbing me and everybody's going why how are we robbing you god and he said you're not giving me tithes and offerings and the only place in the bible that god ever says i double dog dare you to test me God says, if you want to know if I'm real, you want to prove my existence, God says, tithe. And some people are like, I don't want to know that badly. If it, if it costs 10%, I don't want to know if you're real, God. It's the only time. This word test, God says, test me now on this. Because he says, if you'll bring the tithe, and, and in the Old Testament, the storehouse was the temple. And so you took things there. In the New Testament, it moves to the, the, the church, the New Testament church. He says, you're supposed to give your tithe wherever you get fed spiritually. You're supposed to. God expects you to be a member of a local church family. 95% of the time in the New Testament, when it says church, it's talking about a local fellowship. I belong to this church who meets at this house. If you're here in our time, it's this church that meets in, in some place in Palestine or Anderson County. God expects you to give a portion. He says, if you'll do that, I will throw open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings so great you cannot contain them. And what are the blessings? Whatever God chooses to give. When we, uh, when we started this church, we didn't have insurance for the first two to three years. Didn't have a paycheck for some of that time. I'm not kidding you. My kids were seven, five, and two at the time. Not one of them got sick for a three-year period. We didn't go to the doctor. We didn't go to the hospital. And I didn't go to the emergency room. 
You tell me that's not a miracle. <laughs> if you know my history. We've been watching a lot of Tim the Toolman Taylor, and unfortunately there's a lot of similarities. God says, if you want to prove me, then, then tithe. I've been a Christian 39 years now. When I was six, I walked the aisle of Little Baptist Church on a, on a Sunday night and gave my life to Christ. And there have been times through the years that, that I felt like God has asked me to give and to sacrifice. And it's gone way beyond what, what I could afford. Um, I remember making $100 a month in college and giving that $25. I made 25 bucks a week. And I remember giving that, that um, I gave $10. Got to do the math. $10 there. Then when I got up to my, my $250 a month, giving that 25 bucks, that did not make sense because my, my rent was $160 a month. I ate a lot of macaroni and cheese, and I was constipated. Um, <laughs> sorry. Ashley's back there going, where is that? Well, when Janie and I first got married, um, she was a school teacher and I was going to seminary. I was part-time youth minister and I was driving down I-30 coming back from, from Southwestern Seminary to church and just heard this radio report and it was about some, some pastors in Cuba that were trying to get to the United States because they were being uh, persecuted. And I just felt like God say, you need to give. And I said, okay, how much? And I felt like God said, you need to give a thousand dollars. And I kind of laughed and went home and I told Janie, I said, God said, we're supposed to give a thousand dollars. She kind of laughed, said, okay. And we did. That was uh, back in 1992, 18 years ago. About 10 years ago, I was in a church and we had a giving emphasis and, and we were praying about paying off a building. And we felt like God was telling us that we're supposed to give. And so we prayed and, and we had this mutual fund that was sitting there and it was worth a few thousand dollars. And we felt like God was saying, give that to the church. So we just gave it to the church. And, and now we're, we're in this situation where we're, we're asking you to give and, and we're praying about what we're supposed to give to pay off, you know, the new land. We're paying off this. We're trying to have enough money in three years to build a new worship center. Um, and we feel like God is challenging us to give more than we've ever given before. And you may be saying, why would you do that? Well, number one, I don't want to live off my 1992 commitment to give $1,000 to help somebody from Cuba. I don't want to live off my 2000, year 2000 commitment to give some money to another church that I'm no longer even a part of. I want to continue to grow, and so I feel like God's telling me that we've got to do that. Second, I'm not ever going to ask you to sacrifice any more than we will. There will and this may be a pride thing, and I'll fall, but no one will ever work harder in this church than I work. When we were building the building, no one was here more than I would. I will not ask you to come and work here more than I'm willing to sacrifice. And I'll never ask you to give more than I'm willing to sacrifice myself. I believe I'm supposed to lead in that area. And third, Janie and I have just learned that you can't outgive God. It's this game that God plays. God says, you know, will you trust me? We'll say, oh, we're trusting you, God. And God's kind of smiling, you know. Like when, when you, you used to buy your kids French fries and, and, you know, you want one and your kid's like, no, those are my fries. And you're like, I bought those fries. I am French fries for you. I could buy you a bunch of fries or I can take them away. Right? God's looking at us just like we're little kids that don't know how to trust. And he's going, oh, I've got the riches of heaven, but I can't trust you. So I can't give it to you. There's a fourth reason God wants us to give. It makes me happy. (laughs) 
when we started this series, we said there's only two kinds of people in the world. And some of you were dead level honest with me on the back of your registration cards. We said there's givers and there's takers. And I asked you that first Sunday. And more than half the people here said, I'm a taker. I'm not a giver. Well, we want you to become a giver because it affects every area of your life. Carl Menninger is a psychiatrist who has these Menninger clinics, and I didn't know this till this morning. Mike was telling me that, that when Brett Favre had to have some, you know, he was addicted to those pain medications, he went into a Menninger clinic. Not that that means anything, but it might help you remember this. Here's what Menninger says. Giving is an important criteria of mental health. Generous people are rarely mentally ill. The happiest people I know on the face of the planet are the most generous. Conversely, the most miserable people on the planet are the most selfish. And what category are you going to be in? Clues are in your checkbook. In two weeks, we're going to have a final exam on this, this whole series. We've never done this in the history of our church. We may never do it again. We're going to find out if people believe. Are we hearers of the word or are we doers of the word of God? And some of you in 14 days, some of you are going to be attacked because the Bible says when you're about to have spiritual victory, Satan unleashes the gates of hell against you to try to keep you from experiencing that spiritual victory. If you get attacked, some of you already been attacked. We've been attacked. Some of you already been attacked by Satan. Remember this promise, Proverbs 22, 9. Generous people will be blessed. God gets to choose how he'll bless you. He may bless you with a car running longer than it should. You know those appliances in your house that you pretend will never break so you don't have an emergency fund to replace them? God can make those things go longer. God gets to choose when you obey Him. It, it, that's the way it goes. First of all, it's obedience and then blessing. Now, before we finish today, let me just run through real, real quickly a couple of things. I need to explain to you the difference between faith and bargaining. God blesses faith. He does not bless bargaining. Bargaining says, God, if you'll help me secure this million-dollar deal, then I'll give you 10%. Is that faith? No, that's bargaining. God does not play, let's make a deal. God says, you trust me first, then I bless you afterwards. All through the Scripture. Obedience first, then blessing. And if you'll obey, you watch what God does. God, God says, um, if you have faith and you say, I'm going to give it to you, even though I don't understand, this is where, this is where we are, literally. When we're sitting around having our, our family conference, we're saying, we don't know how we're going to give this much. God says, I will bless that. Now, some of you are going to have to give up some things that aren't necessarily necessary, and God's going to bless you for it. Now, some of you have never gone through anything like this before, and for many of you, this is the very first opportunity you're going to have to see God work miracles in your finances. My challenge to you as, as your pastor is talk to God and then go for it. Don't just make something up. That's stupid. <laughs> but if you ask God, and some of you are afraid to ask God because you're afraid of what sacrifice might feel like, it's not as bad as jumping in a swimming pool at 48 degrees. God will work through you and he'll help you. So in two weeks, what we're going to do, um, when we get finished today, you're going to get, uh, if you didn't get one of these packets last week, there's a building, a great life packet. And in there is a commitment card. And on there, there's two things. We're asking you to bring a cash offering on the 28th. 
We're trying to raise enough cash there to pay off $45,000. And by the way, when we first heard that this land was for sale over here, here's what our plan was. Our plan was we were going to talk to them. We were going to ask them if we could give them a down payment and they would hold it until we did this series. And then we were going to pray like crazy that God would give us enough money so that we could buy that land. Within two weeks, we had the money in hand. Someone said, well, why don't you just go ahead and buy it and do that later? Okay. So we bought the land. It is a loan. And so we said, we're going to do this because we believe our people need to be involved in this. So we're trying to pay off that land. Within two weeks, God gave us that land. And we were thinking it'd be way down the road. So some of you need to make that commitment, both a a cash gift and and a 36-month commitment. Um, Some of you don't know what to give and you're worried about it. And let me tell you this. Don't worry. Quit worrying. First, you say this to God. God, you put a figure in my mind that will represent a genuine sacrifice. Second, we've got a piece of paper that you're going to get in just a moment. It's called, how do I know how much to give? How do I know how much God wants me to give? Six questions that you read through on that sheet of paper. On the back, and it shows you just... Yeah, you can go ahead and hand those out, James. It shows you... uh, Actually, hold on, hold on. Let me say a couple more things because people start reading. I've been a teacher way too long. As soon as you give it to them, they're done with me. Um, On the back, it shows you over a three-year period how much you could give if you did it over 36 months instead of just over uh, a one-time gift. And it'll blow your mind what you can do. There's a third group I need to talk to. Some of you have never tithed. Where you need to start is tithing. And then ask God to help you um, to know if there's any other commitment above that. Now, some of you are in stinking financial difficulty and you're sucking wind and you don't know what's going to happen. Let me tell you, relax. We love you and we're going to pray specifically for you. You may not have a job. You may be losing your house, car, whatever. Don't Don't stress. Don't sweat it. We're going to pray for you. But here's the thing you can do. You can go to God and you can say, God, as you provide, I'll give something. And you try to make a faith commitment because God always blesses faith. Second Corinthians says this. If you are really eager to give, then it isn't important how much you have to give. God's not interested in the amount. God's interested in what it represents, which is your heart. And God wants your heart. He wants your life more than anything else. It's all about attitude. It's obvious we're all at different stages, levels. We're at different seasons of our life. Some of us can give more. Some of us can give less. But here's the thing. Our, our goal for this is equal sacrifice, not equal amounts. Because for some of you, a $1,000 one-time gift is nothing. Some of you, $1,000 is a huge deal. So we're worried about sacrificing not equal amounts. Does that make sense? All right, guys, go ahead and hand those out. If you didn't get a Building for Life packet, Building a Great Life packet last week, a manila envelope, would you raise your hand? We're going to give those to you as well. Somebody's saying, I don't want them. Uh, Where are the packets? Who's got those? I can't see. David, would you grab those? I saw two hands. Anybody else not get a packet? Nope, one back over here. So one here, David, and then one back there. All right, let's finish this up. If you have your registration cards, would you take those and fill those out? On the back, I want you to write down what it is that you feel God is telling you today. Which area do you need to be strengthened in through giving? 
Number one was draw me closer to God. Do you need to be drawn closer to God through your giving? Number two, has materialism gotten a grip on you? Do you need to break the, the, the grip of materialism? Number three, it strengthens my faith. Number four, it makes me happy. Write down one of those things. What do you feel God is telling you you need to do? Now, next week we're going to have a time of thanksgiving. We're going to thank God a week before we give the offering. We're going to have a great time next Sunday. Sunday after that, we're, we're going to have the Lord's Supper, and we're going to celebrate as we bring those commitments. And we're going to ask you guys to be praying between now and then that God will do something. Because... I don't want to do anything that everybody else is doing. I don't want to do anything that causes people to say, oh, Doug's the pastor. I don't give a rip. God could take me out, and that would be all right with me. But if you want to be involved in something that's bigger than you, then God gets the glory. There's no way humanly possible we can raise $500,000 in three years. It is beyond us. What God has asked us to do is offer what we can and let him multiply it. You tell me who's going to get the glory if in three years from now we break ground on a new worship center right out here on the parking lot. Are people going to be talking about, oh, those great people at New Life? No. They're going to be saying, somebody big is involved there and maybe I should check him out. And they're going to be talking about God. I've always wanted to be in a church like that. And I think we have that opportunity right now. I'm asking you to join me. Let's pray together. Father, our, our future is in your hands, whether we give this offering or not. But I pray you do something so big that we would not have believed it if you'd told us in advance. And we're going to give you all the glory and all the credit. In Jesus' name, amen.